Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our eighth broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with a new perspective based on cognitive function. Today, with Talk Revolution, the mission is to keep the fires of innovation, pioneering, and our shared culture of giving burning for future generations. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most social problems, disability challenges, poverty, violence, crime, and all those society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy in solving them. Today's podcast episode is focused on ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, specifically the association of cognitive function, the emotional budgeting process, and association of that common disorder that many of our young people and adults have been diagnosed with. This is a call-in podcast. You may at any time feel free to call in with any questions you may have, you may have in regards to cognitive function and our program with emotional budgeting, please call toll-free 888-627-6008 in the U.S. Today for our podcast discussion, we are accept the following definition of ADHD from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, that for short, DSM number 5. Uh, published by the American Psychiatric Association. The APA's goal in developing the DSM-5 is an evidence-based manual that is useful to clinicians in helping them accurately diagnose mental disorders. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, is a persistent, the symptoms that are used in consideration of the diagnosis is a persistent pattern of inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity that interferes with function or development and is characterized by inattention uh, as well as perhaps six or inattention and there are many other distinctions but with the DSM, there are six or more of the following symptoms need to be persist for at least six months. So with the DSM, there is a lot of caveat to the diagnosis. In other words, if we may have a symptom, but they may not be long enough, or there may be a symptom and it needs to be uh, observed for over six months. This is very common for mental health disorders. Uh, in their description of to diet for a diagnosis. It gets a little complicated because it 
makes for a short, symptomless, to be quite an intricate balance of time and symptoms. So for our purposes today, I will just basically go over the symptoms as noted by the DSM-5. So our first one was inattention. And to a degree that is inconsistent with developmental level and negatively impacts direct or social, academic, and occupational activities. Often fails to give close attention to details, makes careless mistakes in schoolwork. Often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Often an individual often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly and seems to be in their own thoughts, often does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties in the workplace. Often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities, managing sequential tasks, and difficulty keeping materials and belongings in order. Often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to uh, is often reluctant to do uh, in response to tasks. The other items that are in inattention uh, aside uh, often is easily distracted, which many may um, seem common and is forgetful in daily activities. The hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms are noted with those that are stereotypes, fidgets, and we can uh, know that sometimes those fidget gadgets have been uh, put out for that. Uh, often leaves seat in situations when remain seating, which would is very noticeable in classrooms or at a workplace, often runs about or climbs in situations where it is inappropriate, often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly, often talks excessively, often has difficulty waiting his or her turn, and several inattentive and hyperactive impulsive symptoms were present prior to age 12 years. Again, we have time and age is often uh, an important factor with the DSM when denoting diagnosis. There's a clear evidence that the symptoms interfere with or reduce the quality of social, academic, and occupational functioning. In all of these cases, it is important to note that ADHD can be from a doctor's from a doctor's medical diagnosis subjective or from observations of those around them parents caretakers and so on so it's important to keep in mind as we go through today's discussion of the way that the DSM classifies these sorts of disorders and the way that the diagnosis are made with what evidence and with what 
precision or lack of in regards to this disorder. The cause of ADHD. From the Medaline Plus online website of the government, NIH, which is National Institute of Health, puts out information in terms of research and notices in regards to ADHD from their website. They indicate that scientists are not sure what causes ADHD. This is again from the government's own website and research notices in regards to the cause of ADHD. Although many studies suggest that genes play a role, likely many other illnesses, ADHD probably results from a combination of factors. They are also researching brain injuries, nutrition, and social environment, and how they might also contribute to ADHD. So in short, they have yet to identify a specific case or specific cause for ADHD. For genes inherited, uh, genes are blueprints. Uh, they are absolutely uh, part of our adaptation to our environment and they can show uh, indications of familial links to parents, to siblings, and they also have environmental factors suggest a potential link between perhaps when a mother is a mother smokes and the and alcohol and the indication of perhaps some potential uh, links from medication abuse or self-medicating uh, behaviors that will impact the fetus. And we have touched on that in one of our podcasts for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, in which we did indicate the possible outcomes of injury to the fetus from uh, the mother ingesting alcohol. ADHD is noted uh, with those who have brain injuries and as of yet, the idea that refined sugar causes ADHD or makes symptoms worse has, is still in, in regards to the NIH, uh, still under research and not uh, as of yet uh, produced as evidence. However, from simple observation as a parent, I, and what I've seen in other children who do ingest large amounts of sugar at times, it does seem to increase, in my opinion, the activity and hyperactivity. But is it ongoing? Is it six months? And that's where we get into the time frame. So when a child ingests, uh, has a bad diet, does that mean that they have ADHD or they have a bad diet? And this is an important because as we get to our portion of the pod podcast that discusses special education and ADHD, we would like to point out the importance, not of the diagnosis, but the implication over the long term. And 
it may often the doctor may not have all the information in regards to a person's diet, uh, environment, uh, prenatal care, and so on. And then we begin to see the subjective uh, information based on the information that may or may not be present when the diagnosis is, uh, if it is made at all. Diagnosing ADHD from the research of NIH. Children mature at different rates. They have different personality, temperaments, energy levels. Most children get distracted, act impulsively, and struggle to concentrate at one time or another. And uh, sometimes these normal factors may be mistaken for ADHD. Again, the DSM denotes time, development, and includes all varied, various factors to distinguish it from a disorder to perhaps poor diet or normal circumstance. ADHD symptoms usually appear in early life, often between the ages of three and six. Since symptoms vary from person to person, the disorder can be hard to diagnose. Parents may first notice that their children lose interest in things sooner than other children and seems constantly unfocused and out of control. And often teachers notice the symptoms first when a child has trouble following rules or frequently spaces out in the classroom or in the, on the playground. No single test can diagnose the child as having ADHD. And again, we're looking at, this is from the information to diagnosing ADHD from the NIH, and they insist on a licensed health professional needs to gather information about the child on his and her behavior and the environment. So you can begin to see that a small and what would seem a simple diagnosis has turned into uh, quite a job for either the parents, the doctor, or other professionals trying to gather that information. So this is a the this is the revolution perspective. From a cognitive functioning perspective, when an ADHD diagnosis is matched with cognitive testing, a clear pattern. So this is where we begin to see that perhaps we can see indications from cognitive functioning perspective why a child might have ADHD symptoms. A clear pattern emerges revealing a consistent disparity between processing centers, memory, and other differences between core cognitive functions. And how we gain an understanding of those functions is with those individuals who have taken IQ tests, such as the uh, IQ tests that measure processing speed and other core cognitive functions. And we'll go over that briefly here. ADHD symptoms appear to be more prominent the greater the difference between those cognitive core functions. So for example, those cognitive, when a child, such as when they're doing a school evaluation or have been taken to an independent professional 
psychologist for an evaluation. Usually they take a cognitive test that would measure such items as verbal comprehension, working memory, perceptual organization, and processing speed. There are various other tests that make up the index that I just described, and they can be added onto uh, in great detail. Again, this is the cognitive testing, not the academic. And these are the things that it measures. And from that, we can see differences in scores that measure how each of those functions and abilities rate. So some may have a greater ability in one of those sections and a lesser ability in others. And the greater the difference, there is a pattern from my work, the greater the difference between those sections, often you'll see the symptoms of ADHD. Whether processing speed is greater than or less than memory capacity is not the important issue or other cognitive core abilities. ADHD symptoms appear to be more prominent the greater the difference in one or more of those functions. These functions IQ tests specifically test for processing speed, working memory, long-term memory, verbal comprehension, and perceptual organization, as we mentioned. It has been observed the consistency of difference of ability between these brains functions may be seen with those who have that diagnosis. This includes, for example, for those with a greater processing ability than their other than memory functions, the results usually indicate a less ref reflective ability and a feeling of needing to do something regardless of consequence or purpose, generating a sense of constantly needing to, to do something, but not sure maybe what it is. So despite what we might see, we have in, when taking cognitive tests, there's generally, sometimes we see a very low score in processing and at times a very high score for processing, but that does not an indication whether the child should have or not have those symptoms. Because either way, it's the difference. When there's an even measure across all of this, of the work cognitive functioning areas, we usually see a normal temperament and behavior. When there's a difference is when the agitation when we see a child who has, is agitated with those symptoms or and even impact the behaviors. So again, we are discussing the difference between what we see generally measured by cognitive testing for IQ. So for example, they generally measure verbal comprehension, working memory, perceptual organization, processing speed. And that is what we see when we get the information across the board with 
behaviors. Brain imaging studies, and we just discussed about the cognitive testing that we might see in, for example, in a school done by a school psychologist, but there are also brain imaging studies, not so common because of the expense and limited access. But NIH indicates that attention deficit ADHD is one of the most common childhood brain disorders and can continue through adolescence and adulthood. Symptoms include difficulty staying focused, as we mentioned, paying attention, difficulty controlling behavior, and hyperactivity. Goes on to indicate these symptoms can make it difficult for a child with ADHD to succeed in school, get along with other children and adults, and finish tasks at home. There is some indication that brain imaging studies have revealed that in youth, with ADHD, the brain matures in a normal pattern, but is delayed on average for about three years. The delay is most pronounced in brain regions involved in thinking, paying attention, and planning. More recent studies have found that the outermost layer of the brain, the cortex, shows delayed maturity overall. These delays and abnormalities may underlink the hallmark symptoms of ADHD. Now, the issue that I have with that is the purpose of that ADHD had in research has been linked to other diagnosis. And they include bipolar, autism, depression. So for those disorders, they may also include developmental delays. So we can see that the overlap, not only may it be in addition to, but they may actually be an overlap with other diagnoses. So the brain imaging may also be seeing what could be types of autism, bipolar, or other issues, and the ADHD is a result of that. So again, this is something to consider when diagnosed with ADHD, that it is a result of, it can also be a standalone diagnosis, but research has indicated that it is prevalent with other mental health issues. And as it mentioned, for various reasons. So there can be a lot of confusion when a doctor may give a diagnosis of ADHD and that person has not seen a mental health profession who may have a better indication of other possible diagnosis that actually may be the underlying root cause. This is uh, very important when in consideration of medicine because some medicine given for ADHD is counter uh, active for those that are the ones that I mentioned. In other words, bipolar and autism may uh, in fact be uh, not the right medicine for those diagnoses. But that's something that should be considered in a medical setting. It's just something to understand that 
ADHD does not necessarily mean it is simply only ADHD, but as a result of another issue or in part of another issue. And this is the difficulty that we may face when presented with, quote, disorders. These functions, for the purposes, again, of our talk revolution, and here I'd like to diverge just uh, quickly on the idea of these issues of disorder and labeling. It is our mission here to consider the perspective of disabilities of our, the question for us is not posed to the individual of how much disorder or what disorder they may have, but how much support does the individual need to gain and meet the institutional expectation or the expectation demanded of society? So again, the question is, should not be, in my opinion, and for talk revolution perspective of the cognitive function, looking at the DSM, there's a pronouncement of ADHD as a disorder. But in regards to our purposes, we ask the question, not how much of a disorder or how much of a disability does that individual bring, but how much support do they need to meet society's expectations? We assume every individual has strengths, weaknesses, behavioral and cognitive. So our question throughout our discussion today is, when does functional issues become a disorder? And rather than trying to identify that failed line in the sand, which we have just grossly gone over with ADHD, that line in the sand when one health professional says it's a disorder and another may say I have do not have enough information. Rather than trying to identify that failed line in the sand by the multiple interpretations and bias of every medical doctor and mental health clinic, rather than stigmatize and ostracize children, the question we simply should ask is how much support do you need? Are you failing? Of course, why is an important question to help. But on top, the next question is, what can we do to support? We propose that every child has the right to health support for the weaknesses of function that has been identified in the same way we go to the optometrist for eyeglasses. It's a correction to increase function of an individual to meet that institutional expectation, nothing more. If we look at those so-called disorders, we might note that most of us have felt this way at one time or another. And again, the time and length of time and other definitive issues mark from when those of us who feel that way at times and those, those of us that have now need to have a diagnosis or are diagnosed.
those who are not considered to have this disorder is the ability to complete institutional ex expectations, their ability to work and complete requested tasks. From a cognitive functioning perspective, ADHD, like so many disorders, may be a normal part of our brain evolution on a curve of adaptation to current expectations. So we have discussed in great detail adaptations such as autism throughout our evolution. And again, ADHD in the perspective of cognitive function appears to be an ongoing adaptation from our history of thousands and thousands of years. And now that our environment has changed, it has become a disorder. We can be sure the expectations of what most children would do 200 years ago is vastly different than now. Charles Dickens writes of the indentured work expected of children as early as five years of age, including working in the mines and mills 12 hours a day, learning by experience, modeling like, modeling likely played a role in meeting those expectations as well as just surviving. Now, our expectation is able to focus on letters and numbers for up to 12 hours a day. We have fixed the eye issue that has not adapted to this need with glasses. And through medicine, we have approached the same measure of treatment for ADHD. But again, we are looking at that there is no definitive treatment for ADHD at this time, other than medicine that may or may not be uh, work. Special education. For those parents and caretakers who have children in school and may think that their child does have ADHD symptoms, Diagnosis is usually required to be signed off by a doctor for some states, such as Washington State, and not necessarily will be accepted just simply by seeing a mental health professional that is not a doctor. There is no, again, there is no single, there is no diagnosis of a single cause of ADHD. So it is diagnosed that is the diagnosis of ADHD. And we have mentioned that research has indicated there are other issues related or perhaps the root cause of ADHD and may should be considered when looking at this diagnosis. It is well researched that ADHD symptoms, again, to reiterate, are observed with individuals who have also been diagnosed with bipolar, autism, depression, and as we know from our previous podcast, the medical trauma of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Please keep in mind special education is not primarily concerned with the diagnosis, but with the impact 
of the diagnosis on academic performance. So yes, they require as one of the, but not necessarily. So if you do not have a ADHD diagnosis and you still have the impact of or difficulty learning difficulties, it may be under a different category. If there is evidence to support that within the school of failing and having the potential to complete the work, but unable to have done so. So ADHD is, is another category, but it gives a wider discretion and understanding of what may be the cause. It is the medical community's job to support the medical needs of the diagnosis and the school's job to support the academic performance. So no matter the medical diagnosis, there has to be a clear evidence of the impact of that issue, whether it's a learning, specific learning issue or a diagnosed issue that impacts the student's ability to keep up with their peers. It is often the case that high-functioning autism display ADHD symptoms in a classroom environment display very high cognitive score, displaying very uh, high cognitive as well as academic scores while failing at times and displaying maladaptive behaviors. Poor behaviors, high cognitive and academic achievement scores will leave schools in a very difficult position of qualifying these students for special education. I myself have been there in those, that difficult situation with kids who were very high functioning and great academic scores, struggled with behaviors. And it's the way the regulations are often written from state to state that makes this a difficult decision for the, for the group that's uh, the stakeholders. For example, the school psychologist, uh, perhaps the principal, um, counselor, and so on, who may be making up that decision. The emotional budget budgeting program addresses this issue specifically, targeting the cognitive functioning pro uh, processing. So there are we have talked about the fact that the NIH does not consider that there is a specific treatment for ADHD. And we have discussed that there may be root causes so that if the root cause is addressed, the ADHD may also be positively treated to reduce or mitigate, be mitigated, such as when bipolar is treated then the ADHD may also improve. The emotional budgeting program that we have described on this podcast specifically can ad address this issue, targeting the cognitive function of processing. Again, remember ADHD, when we discussed this at the beginning of this podcast, we indicated that a clear pattern was observed between the differences 
those with ADHD symptoms and the differences between the cognitive functioning. And processing can involve several issues that we have described before. And that is when emotional data is unable or is not processed in a way that leaves room for the response of the individual to meet the current environmental demands, whether that's a teacher asking for homework, a parent asking to put the garbage out, or an adult that's worked all day, comes home and has the demands of, of a family, children, wife, and so on, may feel overwhelmed. This is with ADHD in the sense that processing is an important part of the ability to focus. And if there is a difficulty in processing, which is often found sim simultaneously with ADHD symptoms, when there is a cognitive testing, we find that there's also at times, not perhaps every individual, but for many individuals will also have difficulty focusing because of the difficulty processing the emotional data that's in their brain. And that emotional data can be there for many reasons of many different diagnoses, but always it's the brain as an organ that must complete certain tasks, no matter the diagnosis. So as a heart must beat regularly in order to keep the person alive, the brain must complete similar functions. It has to process information in order for that person to respond to their environment. No matter the diagnosis, no matter the issue at hand, the brain has a task. If it's impacted by a diagnosis, then the problem is the same. It needs to process information. This is why the implication of what we've been describing across multiple podcasts are always the same. The implication is processing information and emotional data can take up a very large portion of that data of the brain's response and ability to function. <clears throat> so the emotional budgeting program addresses this issue, issue specifically targeting the cognitive function of processing the same way we might see a healthy diet supports the heart beating regularly. If you feed it fat, it may skip a beat. If you feed it healthy, it will support the healthy rhythm of a heart. By addressing the emotional budgeting needs of the brain, we are maximizing, optimizing the ability of the cognitive of the brain to function and problem solve for every individual by supporting the brain and specifically providing a pipeline to for informational information to be filed in an orderly systematic way
the brain identifies and subsequently builds a synaptic pathways to increase the brain's ability to file away the emotional data. As the brain increases the ability to file emotional data, there's an increase in cognitive functioning to respond to the individual's immediate and long-term demands with subsequent decrease in maladaptive behaviors. This increased performance can be measured at home and with further assessments, such as those tools that are used commonly by psychologists and school psychologists. The behavior, for example, the behavior assessment system for children, third edition uh, by Cecil Reynolds and Randy Campus. Other functional uh, adaptive behavior assessment system, uh, third edition by Patty Harrison and Thomas Oakland. And another is the Vineland Adaptive Behavior Scales. These assessments provide the evidence and the measurement tools to identify the increased functioning, to identify the increased measure of positive behaviors or negative behaviors, and are an important tool to noting when these treatments or when these supports are working. This is the understanding when these assessments are used. Although they're used often in conjunction of a diagnosis, they are also often used in the evaluation in a, for a school psychologist to understand if the child is in fact their needs and how much support they need to support them to be keep up with their peers or to match their peer group, their grade level. But really it's, it's by age. So it's very important when we discussed that mission of uh, talk revolution, that the mission is, begs the question, not how much disorder does a child have? In other words, at what level can we dismiss this child for not meeting our institutional goals, but what support can we give that individual to meet the goals? And in my opinion of having worked in the schools system, it has become a very important question for the individual's sense of value. And that sense of value for themselves does depend on their feeling of support rather than noting their failure. How much support do they need for them to meet our expectation that we have set as a goal for these students? This again is the difference between what I would consider simply a diagnosis and the assessment of function. At what level 
do we, does an individual function and how much support do they need to increase that function? And so these assessments in both behavior and adaptive behavior assessment are the tools that really support our question of how much do they need for them to meet the goal and not how disabled and crippled are these individuals that we need to put them in a lower system of education. And by looking at it from the cognitive function and perspective, and by looking at the functions that we can assess, we can then describe the support that would best help them. So emotional budgeting, our program provides relief, supports cognitive functioning for those searching to build a foundational basis to mitigate the, the issues, the challenges for those with ADHD diagnosis. The emotional budgeting program addresses the distress by addressing the distress of the brain for those feeling overwhelmed by unprocessed emotional data, connection of the brain distress is a direct connection of the brain that regulates the limbic stress response. The brain sensing difficulty depends on the same system to signal a danger or to signal a interaction with the environment. The brain's processing ability is a finite system. When emotional information overwhelms the brain's processing ability, it competes with the ability of the individual to respond to the task demand with needed problem-solving skills. So in the end, after the emotional data has been effectively, efficiently filed, we have more that should increase the ability of the cognitive functioning to problem solve that would be to meet the environment demanding tasks. So in school, there should be an increased ability to problem solve those demands in school and again at home when there's an environmental demand to again more demand on the individual to respond to those around them. The greater the emotional distress, the greater the unorganized information becomes in the processing center of the brain, increasing the brain's distress. So again, greater the emotional distress, the greater the unorganized information. We have discussed the outcome of the brain distress in multiple pathways, behavior seeking to address this feeling. So multiple pathway behaviors, have, there are many different behaviors that seeks to address this feeling of brain distress. So it's not simply provoking one behavior, but there are many outcomes of behavior that will seek to address this feeling. For example, self-medication, medication, lashing out, looking to peers for problem-solving mechanisms, such as lying, procrastination, 
and ultimately possibly a sense of hopelessness in working out problems. This is how and why the Emotional Budget Workbook was designed to support our mind, lower the distress to prevent the synaptic and physiological signals from being sent out and creating the havoc of maladaptive behaviors that lead to poor health, violence, and in general, costing all of us trillions of dollars in needless expense of daily functional difficulties. This is not to say that this would eliminate expenses all around, but rather shift them from the results of poor maladaptive behaviors and the results of bad outcomes to preventing bad outcomes to promoting positive behaviors that is promotes productivity. And in all of this, is an attempt to increase productivity of our medical and mental health system. And by doing that, we can put the costs and the money towards those things that not only will provide us better health care, but do it in a more even and cheaper fashion. So by addressing and promoting preventative measures, such as we have discussed today with the emotional budgeting program, not only should we get healthier outcomes, but then the shift in funding can go to those things that such as epidemics, uh, viruses, and other forms of med medicine that right now as everything is likely underfunded. This is an important part of why we discussed and consider this talk revolution. It is a change in perspective of what we can do, how we see things, not minimizing, but promoting individuals' values and individuals' productivity by noting that we are here to support the question may be how much support does an individual need? And from there, we can find that in every individual that is supported, their productivity in turn supports others and reduces the overall cost as we mentioned. My next podcast will lead a discussion of relationships and cognitive functioning and the emotional budget program. In some ways, we have discussed relationships on the peripheral importance of many of these topics, but I'd like to take an in-depth look at how important this program is to improving the sense of relationship and the connection to responsibility. For if we do not understand, it is difficult for us to take responsibility for our decisions and to find and to understand our, how cognitive functioning 
how cognitive functioning is important to behaviors and what we do and the decisions we make and the dif difficulties we face. Once we have provided that ability to improve that, our next step is to take responsibility. And in our next podcast, in the discussion of relationships, it is not only going to be concerned about how cognitive functioning relates to that, but ultimately our responsibility and our choices. And again, from there, the ability to improve our problem solving with emotional issues. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com for parents and caregivers, individuals and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. I would like to thank our producer, Doug Newsom, and again, our audience for being here today. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul Sambataro. Consultations are available through emotionalbudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.